0: Amen. Well, I want you to imagine two men uh, working on the building of St. Paul's Cathedral, and they are both asked the question, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, One of them looks up from his miserable work, laying bricks, he's got bleeding hands, he's got a a weather-beaten face, and he replies to you and he goes, I'm laying bricks, Can you not tell? I am covered in mortar, my hands are bleeding, I've been up here in all weathers. It's miserable. You look at the other man and you say, what are you doing? He looks at you with similarly bleeding hands and a weather-beaten face, a weary body, and he says, listen, I don't know whether you can see past these hands or the weather-beaten face, but actually I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build the world's finest place of worship and I can't believe I get to be part of it. I want you to think, uh, which one of those two men slaving away, which of them is most likely to give up? Which one's most likely to give up? Of course, the answer is obvious. And it's not because there's any distinction in their experience at all. They're both experiencing exactly the same thing. Rather, the point is that somehow seeing the bigger picture, understanding what's going on, brings assurance and confidence and maybe even joy that in the midst of all the pain, there is a plan. And in a way, that's what our section of Romans 8 this morning is doing. This section of Romans 8 isn't about how to avoid suffering. It's not a you know, how-to-lay-bricks-without-your-hands-bleeding kind of manual. It's not about minimizing suffering and maximizing pleasure. That's, that's the world's answer to suffering, isn't it? To try and minimize suffering and maximize pleasure. That's the world's answer. Do everything you can to avoid suffering. You know, stick to this diet plan. Exercise like this. Take care of yourself. Not that any of those things are necessarily a bad idea. It's just that the idea that you can avoid suffering and that's the best way to cope with suffering is a lie. Living involves suffering. And Romans 8 is very honest about that. But it's not a chapter just about suffering either. Instead, this section is written to bring assurance and confidence to the suffering in the midst of their suffering so that they can keep going, keep hoping in Christ. That even with whatever the the weather-beaten-face equivalent is or the bloody knuckles equivalent, they can see what God is doing. And so I want to try and show us that together in seeing this balance in the passage, seeing uh, the suffering and the hope. So let's split our time into two. Suffering first, hope later, okay? Suffering and then hope. So let's start with suffering. Now, Romans 8, 18 to 30 is structured around three separate groaners. Groaning, not as in moaning, but groaning under the weight and pain and frustration and difficulty of suffering. And the first one is groaning creation. Look down at verse 22. You will see that creation is groaning. But as you look at the passage, you'll notice that the, the discussion of creation's frustration is started back in verse 19, when you're told that creation itself is suffering as it waits for glory. Verse 20 tells you that it has been subjected to futility, or vanity, or a sort of mislike pointlessness. Not that's because the way the world has been intended to be, but because it has been made like that by God, so that it points to a hope beyond itself. Just be clear what's happening here. Verse 19 tells you that creation is waiting for the, with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. It means that creation here, as you read it, is not people, either Christian or non-Christian. Rather, it's the rest of all that has been made. The impersonal creation, if you like it. Hills, trees, mountains, seas, the animal kingdom. All of them, we're told, are frustratingly and, and groaningly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, spoken about in the verses that we looked at last week. You know, the, the world floods, the mountains shake, the sun burns as nothing quite works in the way it was meant to. The world is groaning. This, then, if you like, is, is sort of Bible environmentalism, if you want to use that word. It takes our stewardship of the planet really seriously but it realizes that our biggest impact on the planet is not our carbon emissions, as bad as those might be, but rather is our rejection of the creator, so that he has subjected the world to frustration. In other words, there's an inbuilt groaning in our world. Dysfunctioning creation is not a glitch in creation, it's a curse on creation. So much so that sustainability and ecological harmony will only come as Christ returns. Because right now, creation is groaning. That's the first groaner. The second is the Christian, the Christian groaning. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is Paul's point, isn't it? We'll we'll zoom in on the hope in a moment, but just notice the groaning first. Paul's point here is that even in this glorious chapter about the certainty and security of salvation... He wants you and I to know and to acknowledge that a central part of the Christian experience will be groaning. Groaning not just because of persecution for being a Christian, but groaning just because of the the pain, the frustration, the difficulty of living in a fallen world. In other words, here there's, there's nothing to suggest in this passage that the successful Christian experience is sheltered from poor health or from joblessness or from a struggle with your mental health or from a battle with persistent temptation. There's nothing in this passage to suggest that being a Christian will shelter you from wounds inflicted by others, from innocent suffering, or even suffering brought on yourself by our own weakness and our own sin. Some of that, says Paul, will be a normal part of Christian experience. Like the men that we started with. If you're laying bricks, your hands will bleed. You'll be blown by the rain, pelted by the wind. No, blown by the wind, pelted by the rain. Just checking, you're listening. So living is the only precondition to suffering, we're told. I just wonder, as a a church, we've we've sort of grown up together, haven't we, over the last 15 years, and experienced this reality. I I wonder, probably we all knew it in theory, but then it it becomes real, doesn't it? When children get diagnosed with cancer, when people lose jobs, when church members bury family members... We've seen church members walk away from the Christian faith. We've seen church members die and go to glory. We've seen relational mess, marriage struggles, wayward teenagers, broken families. But none of that is because our church here is broken in any way. It's because we're groaning. We're groaning. Uh, This is my penultimate sermon here. Well, I'm not really preaching on Sunday evening next week. It's sort of a sermonette as... Marco was teasing me about this week. Anyway, so this is this week and then next week in Romans 8. Let me, if I can, just give you a bit of parting advice. Whoever you appoint as the next pastor or whoever you appoint as future uh, leaders and elders in the church, you have to ask yourself this question. Is this someone I want with me when I suffer? Is this someone I want with me when I suffer? Because that's a big part of what they're here for because suffering is such a big part of life. And preparing saints for suffering and ministering to them in the midst of that suffering is core business for an elder or for a pastor of a church. It's been a privilege and an honor to do that with you guys. So Christians groan. Third and final groaning is the Spirit of God, the groaning Spirit. Look down at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now we need to take some care here. The groaning of creation and of us under the Spirit are not quite identical. God the Spirit is not pained by our suffering in quite the same way that we are. But even still, notice why the Spirit groans. Look down at the passage. We are told, firstly, that the Spirit is with us in our weakness. So we wait patiently in suffering, so likewise the Spirit helps us in verse 26. In other words, the Spirit's presence is not banished by our suffering. You know, the, the Spirit in us is not gone at the first sign of trouble. Out of there, you know, the moment that things go wrong. People can be like that, can't they? But the Spirit's not like that. He stays with us through suffering. Now, obviously, the Spirit is not surprised by the suffering in the same way that we are, nor does he feel the pain in quite the same way that we do. Instead, it seems that his groaning comes more from the display of our weakness. You notice that? Our suffering displays our weakness to the Spirit, a weakness which is clearly seen, verse 26, in our ignorance. Why are we ignorant? What is it that we are ignorant of? Well, look down at the verse. Because we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know what to pray for as we suffer. So the groaning spirit prays for us in groans, verse 27, that are in line with the will of God. It's a a beautiful and I think humbling image. Just see whether you can paint it with me. Imagine this, right? It's it's connect group night or, or maybe an impact prayer time. Uh, And Andrew, just for the sake of argument, I'm trying to choose a name that's not in the room, shares, you know, I've got a busy week this week. Work's a nightmare at the moment. And on top of that, I've got to ride my bike to work this week because the car's in for an MOT. So he asks you, listen, please, please, would you pray that my car passes its MOT? And everyone in the Connect Group goes, yes, we'll we'll pray for that. Now, at that moment, the indwelling spirit, in my imagination at least, he loves Andrew. He's interested even in his car's M.O.T., but in those moments he's going, oh my goodness, we don't even know what to pray for, do we? He, Andrew is in a cosmic battle for his spiritual survival and he thinks his car's M.O.T. is the most urgent thing for him to ask prayer for this week. Oh, Father, says the Spirit, Brother Andrew here doesn't have a clue. Please, please keep him going. Help him to persevere in faith this week. Maybe that's an obvious example, but the truth is, I think, if you're a Christian this morning, I think these verses tell you that the indwelling Spirit experiences you and I in that way all the time. He observes our Christian lives from the inside and sees what? Weakness and ignorance. You and I might pretend to live our Christian lives with strength and understanding, but the Spirit in us knows better than the show that we put on for other people. He knows that we can't even pray for the right things. But even there, he doesn't abandon us, but groans out in prayer to God the Father in words that we could never articulate, in prayers that we wouldn't ever pray, prayers that God longs for us to pray. And honestly, Christians this morning, that's the only reason that any of us keep going, because the Spirit is interceding for us, praying for us. That's the suffering, the three groaners of suffering. What about the hope? Let's see that together in the passage. Hope in suffering. Verse 18 introduces the topic, doesn't it? Having said in verse 17 that we're to share in Christ's sufferings, we're told immediately, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. In other words, there's there's an experience of future glory to which all present suffering must be compared. And it's a comparison in which Uh, Present suffering will always come out wanting against the weight of future glory. Future glory eclipses present suffering, whatever that suffering might be, however painful it might be. Think about it. You've got eternal glory. in In a creation remade by God, with him, you've got terminal cancer. Which one wins? Marriage breakdown or eternal glory personal weakness, eternal glory, struggle and strife, eternal glory. He says it outweighs them all. Uh, And then the same three witnesses tell us more about that hope. So let's go back through them. Creation, firstly. Creation hopes. Do you see this? Creation's groans are not purposeless. Look at verse 22. They are like birth pangs. In other words, they are the groans associated with future joy. I don't want to Pretend that I know what this is like. I've observed it, but I've never felt it. This is like an agonizing pregnant woman whose pain is framed by the reality that she's about to meet the baby. So verse 21: creation is waiting to obtain the freedom and glory of the children of God, to be set free from its pregnant bondage. The the point is that, that, like a pregnant woman, that creation can't wait to see what it longs to see. That it doesn't yet see but knows it will do, which is who God's people are. Imagine that. Is that the, the whole of creation longing to see the real us. You know, frustratingly for creation, there's no label, is there, on people right now. Oh, that's one of them. That's one of them. She's one. He's one. Our future glory is masked. Again, it paints a brilliant picture, doesn't it? The, the, the truth is, looking in no direction in particular, the truth is that we're all very plain and ordinary can not we? I know perhaps when you're young, you do a few things to make people notice you. You perhaps get a, a crazy hairstyle or some funky clothes or some crazy tattoos or some piercings or something like that. Maybe then one or two people might notice you. But the truth is, if you're a Christian this morning, the whole of creation is waiting to see you. Not your new outfit or your new trainers or that tattoo you're so proud of. Creation is waiting to see who you are as a child of God. A son and an heir with Christ who will inhabit this creation remade by God for the glory of his name. A world of ecological harmony. A world that looks like the world that this world wants to be, but is not yet. Because it's frustrated because of our sin. Listen, I I think this means, you put it like this, can you? The most fashionable and standout thing that you can do is what? Pray, come Lord Jesus. The most ecologically friendly thing you can do is pray, come Lord Jesus, because that's what all of creation is longing for. Secondly, though, notice Christian hope, the Christian hopes. This is the point at the end of verse 23 and 24. Let me just read those again. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice here that being a, being a Christian now is about having the first fruits, not the whole thing. We are redeemed by the cross of the Lord Jesus, but we are still, he says, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We are saved, but we still need saving. We don't yet have all that's been promised. So salvation now is in future hope. Hope for something which, by definition, says Paul, you don't have yet, otherwise you wouldn't be hoping for it. And so we wait patiently for it. I don't know whether you've thought about this this morning. This this is the reason that our Christian experience is so frustrating and difficult. Why is Christian experience frustrating and difficult? Well, because it's incomplete. Full redemption full salvation, full glory, is still ahead of us. So the ordinary, healthy, mature Christian life involves hope and patience amidst disappointment and difficulty because the future reality is still to come. It means too, doesn't it, you can flip that over and say, if this morning you are satisfied with your Christian life and experience, then there is something seriously wrong with your Christian life and experience. Yeah, think about it like this. The, the, the Christian life is like an invite to a grand feast and banquet. And in becoming a Christian, all you've done is walk through the door and taken your coat off. You've yet to be given those fancy little drinks and buffet things. The feast and the dancing and the big meal, that's all yet to come. And so we are eagerly waiting for it. Recognizing that our experience now is brilliant, but it's only Partial. Finally though, and this is where I want us to spend the most of whatever time we've got left, is on these last few verses. And the uh, the groaning spirit is also the spirit of hope. So look down at verse 28, which I know you know well, and let me read it to you again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is, of course, what the Spirit knows, snee, and we quickly lose sight of. This is what in our weakness and suffering we miss, but he always sees, which is that God is at work in suffering. At work for our good, as he puts it. But the promise is very specific and very clear, isn't it? So let's let's not leave it as a sort of sentimental idea or vague hope. Let's drill into these verses and see what they mean. Notice that God is working for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God, as he puts it. In other words, this is not fate, is it? This is not everything works out for everyone. This isn't the... I don't know, don't worry, everything will be alright, that your school teacher says to you, when they have absolutely no idea whether everything will be alright. It probably won't be. This isn't a verse for us to, to pin on the side of the church, is it? So that every passerby gets consolation from it. It's not that, is it? There is no hope or consolation here for someone who's not trusting Christ. This is a specific good for Christians. Which means that if you're not a Christian this morning, you can't start with this verse. Not because... God's not interested in you, but because you're not interested in him. You don't love him. Being a Christian starts not with a desire for your plans to work out okay, but with a desire to lose your plan and come to trust in the God who made you, hearing his call and turning from your sin. And this promise is for those who have been called by God like that. And for them, we're told, God is at work for their good, But if that that narrows the promise, so the promise is for Christians, it's also expanded out, isn't it? Because we're told that God is at work for Christians in all things, all things. That means he's at work in your suffering. He's at work in the pain of your life. This, I think, is the most incredible thing. He's at work in your sin, even. At work in your successes and your joys, in your sickness and your weakness. He's at work in the small niggles at work and the big stress in your family. He's at work in the fact that you can't find your trainers for P.E. in the morning and the fact that you didn't get the grades that you wanted to. He's at work in the burnt toast and the car crash, in the misunderstanding with a friend and the breakup of a marriage. He's at work in the inclinations of your heart and the attitude of those around you. God is at work in all. All things. But notice too that the work he's about is very specific. It's called for good, isn't it, in verse 28. But then the definition of what that is is spelt out in verse 29 in more detail. Look down at verse 29. The good that God is working for is that we might be conformed to the image of his son, squeezed into the likeness of Christ, molded to be like him. In other words, for the Christian, God is at work in all things in their lives, big and small, easy and difficult, intended or unintended, to make them like Christ, to think like Christ, to behave like Christ, to respond like Christ. I've been puzzling on this a little bit this week and thinking, as you imagine that, you might think firstly about things like fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, and I'm sure that's true. But I I think in Romans, the predominant image of the Son is not so much his holy life. Of course, Christ is holy in Romans, don't get me wrong. But more in focus than his holy life is his sacrificial life. So I think if you're to take this in the context of what Paul has been saying in Romans, you can say that being conformed to the image of Christ is being moulded into the shape of the life of one who gave up his life for the salvation of others. The one who died, who gave up the glories of heaven to shed his blood on a cross, before being raised victorious and ascending to the Father's side, awaiting his inheritance of the nations in a kingdom still to come. Which means, I, I think, when you put this back into Romans 8 28, you can say something like this this morning if you're a Christian God is at work in my life. God is at work in my life in all things. God is at work in my life in all things to make me like the one who humbly gives up their life for others as he places his hope not in this world but in future glory. So much so that every tiny frustration, every big crisis, every weakness, every sinful mess, every pain inflicted by myself or by others, all of this is to teach me to humbly loosen my grip on life now and place my hope in future glory. Because the more I loosen my grip on life now and hope in future glory, the more Christ-like I am. You see, here's the, the mind-bending truth of Romans 8. You know, our, our, our knuckles are bloody, don't they? Our face is windswept. The rain is pelting us. But God, by his Spirit, is making us into the most beautiful place of worship that has ever been seen. And every detail of our lives is conforming us into the image of his Son, so that on the day when Christ returns, we will be perfected for him, by him. And this plan, this plan that God has that is at work in all things in your life, if you're a Christian this morning, it's not a new one, is it? Verse 29 tells you that if you're a Christian, he knew you before time itself. He foreknew, before knowledge. And not only that, he decided that you would be part of this plan. He pre, before, destiny, end, predestined you, says Paul. Then in verse 30, he says he acted on that predestined foreknown plan by calling out to you calling to you in a way that you would hear and respond to in faith, so that by faith he might declare you not guilty, justified, as he puts it here, through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in your place, that your future glory might be so assured that he can talk at the end of verse 30 as if it has already happened. You're glorified in the likeness of Jesus. So if you're a Christian this morning, take courage. The master builder has a plan. It involves tears, your tears, the tears of those you love. But they won't be wasted as you're conformed to the likeness of the Son that you might share in future glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for these amazing words, this promise that you're at work in all things in our lives, that we might grow in Christ's likeness, be conformed to his image. And Lord, we acknowledge that this sort of loosening our grip on the treasure of this world and life now is painful and hard and difficult. So we pray, please, that you might capture us with a vision of future glory, of being one of the many brothers of verse 29, the fellow heirs of verse 17, that we might be so delighted in that, that we might consider that the sufferings of this present time, of which there are many in this room, are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. Help us to hold on to that truth, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.